somebody else's name. I thought that's how that was going to go, but thank you so much. Hey, so like Derek said, my name's Ryan. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors in our missions department, uh, currently to lead out our short-term mission trip. So uh, I'd like to start with an advertisement. If you haven't signed up to go on a mission trip, today's the best day to do it because I'm here and I would love to sign you up. Every day is a great day to sign up, but uh, please, short-term missions are a really, really beautiful thing that grows your faith, that honors our partners, and ultimately furthers the most important thing, the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, hey, here we are on Memorial Day Sunday. I'm so grateful that you have come to join. I'm so grateful we get to sing these songs of victory and freedom, singing to the one, looking at the one, Jesus Christ. And how many of you are grateful that because someone else gave their life, we have freedom? Hallelujah. Come on, let's give God praise for that. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, that'll be the day, by a show of hands, right? A lot of people in the first service had heard it because I think they were remembering a Buddy Holly song from many, many decades ago. But that'll be the day, right? It's a phrase that often carries with it maybe even disbelief or expectation or excitement. It carries with it a lot of uh, different feelings. But that'll be the day. And thinking of a day that is coming. And friends, I'm so excited that today we get to talk about the quintessential day of the phrase, that'll be the day. As we're in Revelation 19, we get to look at these second coming of Jesus Christ and the day when he finally and fully defeats all of God's enemies for all time. That will truly be the day. That's a great spot to shout hallelujah and give God praise that it is coming. Amen. In our lives, I think we've seen a lot of um, time and effort and energy and study put forth to win that day will come. Now, all the study of God's word is profitable. Anytime you're studying the scriptures, it's a good thing for you, and it's a good thing for God. He's glad that you're studying his word. Uh, but, but maybe more so than when today, I'd like us to focus on what. What will happen on that day? What do we gain or earn on that day? And, and maybe even more important than what is that it will happen. That day is coming. So Again, so much effort has gone to when is that day going to come? How many of you have ever seen somebody falsely predict the return of Christ? Anybody? Lots of, lots of people, right? So we see a lot of when, but I want us to focus on what and that it is going to happen. What happens at the return of Christ is deeply important. Deeply important for us and our walk with the Lord, our relationships, each and every one of them. Our families, our neighborhoods, our churches, everything. And as we look at this day then, whenever then may be, I want to argue that it should deeply impact now, right here, right now. Whenever then is, right now ought to be impacted. So my prayer today and, and your pastor's heart uh, for you this morning is that as we look toward the final victory of Christ through the scriptures, that the scriptures would also be looking at us that they would be discerning and examining our hearts and our lives, and we would be moved by and into Christ's victorious mission. We're in the second week of a series called All Things New. You saw a video last week of Pastor Chris who opened this sermon series where we're going to be looking at the last four chapters of the scriptures, Revelation 19 through 22. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead, open up to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Pastor Chris left off at verse 10. We're going to pick up at verse 11. And again, why is this important? We're looking to something then with hopes that it will deeply and richly impact us now. 
And why is now important? I, I would say that Christianity has probably faced some of its biggest, biggest challenges of the Western world recently, right? If you just look at reports and these studies that you see that the church is declining, you've heard that. And I'm going to throw up a lot of air quotes today because the church of Jesus Christ can never decline. Amen? Amen. But the church is declining and attendance is declining and personal evangelism is a thing of the past and sin is rampant not only in the world but also in the church. And the scientific and secular cultural revolutions have made faith obsolete and on and on and on it goes, these attacks against Christianity. So in today's day and age, where should the Christian find hope? Where do we find the appropriate motivation to overcome the challenges? And there are real challenges that our modern culture uh, faces and continue the mission that God has called us to. Simple, by looking at the end of the story, right? How many of you love the Christmas movie Die Hard? No booze, hallelujah. <laughs> waiting to get through that with no booze, right? Now, I've seen that movie a lot. It's uh, if you're a child in here, ask your parents permission and don't watch it until you're of age, whatever age that is. Um, but I've seen that movie a, a bunch of times. And still, when like amazing scenes happen in that movie, my heart rate rises, right? Like I get kind of excited and I'm like, what's going to happen? Is he going to make it? And I've seen it probably 30 times. And it, it, I don't know if this is a spoiler alert. It's like 30 years old, but he makes it every time. Every single time he wins. Uh, but still, there's like emotional pull, an emotional draw that comes when we see a, a story that we know the end of, even though we find hope be, by remembering the end of the story. So as we look at the end of this story, I pray the same would be true for you, that there's hope that you would know how it all ends. So even as we're experiencing joy and disappointment, even as we're experiencing heart palpitations and boredom, that we would remember the end and the end would give us hope. That we'll see this prophetic truth. There's a, I'm going to say the word prophecy and prophetic a lot in here. And a simple definition for our time today is words or phrases coming from heaven that ought to impact our lives here on earth, right? Prophetic. Words that come from heaven that ought to impact our lives here on earth. There's this prophetic truth and magnificent images that, that flood and fill our hearts and minds as we find the motivation from the end to overcome and fulfill our present challenges and mission right now. So as Pastor Chris opened last week, we saw the first 10 verses of Revelation 19 called uh, the Hallelujah Chorus, right? There's this beautiful celebra celebration and praising of God and glory, hallelujah, is said all over uh, the first 10 verses. And then it goes into the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's all amazing stuff, right? Just awesome, awesome section of Scripture. But today as we pick up in chapter 19, verse 11, uh, we see the blessed marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Lamb, come to an abrupt halt as the Apostle John gets this vision of a rider on a white horse coming from heaven to pass judgment and make war. So the feast seems like it's over and it's ending and there's you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this a little bit that, you know, you're two weeks into a sermon series on Revelation and there's all different kinds of things to talk about as we look through the last four chapters of the book of Revelation uh, and different uh, events and timing and whether things happen, when they happen, all those types of things. And again, all study of God's word is profitable. And you ought to know why you believe what you believe about the end of the story. But today, we're not going to focus a lot of time on when is the rapture or the tribulation or the millennial kingdom or any of those things. I'm going to leave that all for your pastor, CT, next Sunday. He's going to handle all that stuff. He'll, he'll decode all of it next Sunday for you. But today, everybody say today. today. I just want us to focus our, our gaze 
on one thing, Jesus. Let's just look at the victorious warrior king today who is our king. And he is victorious. And while there's plenty of stuff to disagree about in the book of Revelation, I think, I hope we can all agree that this victorious warrior king, Jesus, is coming back. And when he does, Jesus will defeat all of God's enemies. Hallelujah. Amen. So before we begin, I think there's a question we need to just address real quick in our hearts. Kind of a frame to look at the remainder of the sermon through. And it's this, does what I believe about the second coming of Christ, then, whenever then is, this afternoon, 100 years from now, whatever, whenever then is, does that impact how I think and live now, today? Does what I believe about the end then, Christ's return, impact how I live today? And if we believe that Jesus is coming back to fully and finally defeat all of God's enemies for all time, then friends, I'd argue that it should impact how we live today. So uh, without further ado, let's get into the word of God. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. But I want to start by uh, reading the second half of verse 10. Revelation 19, verse 10. Everybody there? Everybody have a Bible today? Amen. Hallelujah. It's a great place to bring a Bible to church. If you don't have a Bible, Woodside Bible Church in Royal Oak will happily give you one. Nobody argued with that. That's good. I want to make sure that we're, we're in the business of giving Bibles away here. Second half of verse 10 says this. You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Again, the testimony, the clear witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy because he's coming. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that your word is true. Thank you so much that you allow us to sit here this morning and read and receive and have read over us the word of God. So I pray in Jesus' name, and by the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God, you would illuminate yourself to us today, that we would see you high and lifted up as faithful and true, as you gave the revelation to John, and he recorded it so we could have it today. I pray that we would see the faithful and true one today, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. Point number one is to see the victorious king, and we just saw him. We just saw these eight amazing statements about this victorious king, this rider on a white horse. And we're going to kind of run really, really fast through these eight statements, and it's going to be a lot and action-packed, kind of like Die Hard, uh, a lot of action, not a whole lot of storyline, but we're just going to hammer these verses, and then we're going to slow down and see what's really going on here. But first, we have to see what John sees. 
In verse 11, he says, I saw heaven opened. Now, uh, we're going to kind of jump back and forth throughout the book of Revelation. So uh, you can either take great notes or ask questions at the end or watch this as it's recorded. Uh, but in, in verse 4, John also sees uh, a doorway in heaven open. But it opens into heaven, sort of. So he kind of sees, he gets access to these heavenly realities. And he begins to see something in heaven. In chapter 6, we see another rider on a white horse coming. Uh, the, the Antichrist comes. And it says that the skies are rolled back like a scroll, but this is a different opening of heaven that John sees. Heaven is now opening toward earth, and we see the heavenly one coming toward earth. And then we'll see this kind of reach its culminative climax in chapter 21 when the heavenly city comes to earth. So John is saying, I am watching heaven open, and the heavenly one is coming to me. And this is what he looks like, this beautifully significant, symbolic, and descriptive picture of Jesus as the victorious rider on a white horse. Now, why is it important that he's on a white horse? This would have been very common imagery and language for many of John's hearers or readers, because in Roman society, if somebody went out to battle and they came back as a victorious warrior or emperor or general, they would ride back into the city on a white horse, signifying that they were triumphant in their return, that they had won the victory. So I think some of this is to uh, tell a Roman audience, hey, there is a real victor, victor coming back. And immediately he calls him faithful and true. And we know that Jesus is the faithful and true one. But this language also is important and symbolic. There's a, a book that's not included in our canon of scripture uh, called Maccabees, which is about a Jewish revolution. The main character is Judas Maccabeus, who has one of the greatest nicknames of all time, Judas the Hammer, right? That's an awesome nickname. Um, but it's about this Jewish revolution. And in third Maccabees, it says this, that God the king is faithful and true. Right? And then there's also another rider on the white horse. We talked about this already, the Antichrist. And I think what John is doing by saying he's on a white horse, he's faithful and true, and he is the next one, the true one coming on a rider of a white horse. He's saying, whoever you put your faith in, this is the one you should put your faith in. This is the one who is fully faithful and completely true. He is the one who is not leading out of selfishness. He's faithful to his promises. He's righteous in his judgment, and he'll never let us down. And now he's come back to make war on on the beast and on his followers. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, it says, proving that nothing can be hidden from the sight of the rider on the white horse. Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus is purifying and scorching. His eyes are burning away anything that would try and stand in the way of a righteous judgment, anything that would try to be propped up as a facade. His eyes can see through it. He knows all and he sees all. On his head are many diadems. Again, we see this throughout uh, the book of Revelation in contrast, where we see other people in the book of Revelation or, or symbols wearing crowns. The Antichrist comes wearing a crown. The, the beast is wearing seven crowns. The dragon, excuse me, is wearing seven crowns in, in chapter 12 and the 10 crowns of the beast in chapter 13. And I believe that Jesus is coming back with many crowns, not numbered to signify all the crowns are his. All sovereignty is his. All authority is his. All dominion is his. His crowns cannot be numbered. It says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, many would say that this is a secret uh, that is uh, not revealed to those in creation. I think it's beautiful in that even as 
as he comes back, there's still things about God that we won't know right away. That there's still this, this mystery of God that we won't know right away. I think it also speaks to the, the intimate relationship Jesus has with the Father. That there is a name that no one knows but him. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Before the battle even happens, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, which many scholars would say is uh, an allusion to Isaiah 63, where Isaiah is having a conversation with God and saying, why are your robes bloody? And God says, because the lifeblood of my enemies have been spattered on them as I tread them out in the wine press. So I think in, in verse 15, we see that come out. I think there's a very clear allusion to that, but it's before the battle. So it could just be a prophetic allusion, or it also could be that before the battle, Jesus has still already spilled some blood. On the cross, Jesus spilled blood. And maybe he's coming back in robes that are stained with the blood that he shed on the cross. What it can't not mean, can't not, that's a double negative. So what I'm about to say is what it actually has to mean. Amen. We're all tracking together. I'm trying to keep my job as a preacher here at Woodside Bible Church, right? Is that Jesus, whether he spills the blood of his enemies or spills his own blood over the enemies of sin, death, hell, and the grave, that he will ultimately be victorious over every single enemy of God. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Either way, We've got to be sure, we're sure that Jesus conquers enemies. The name by which he's called is the word of God. A clear, again, another clear allusion to John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the logos of God. Jesus is the word of God that has been made manifest, incarnate. But here in Revelation, I think it's much more about a declaration. Jesus being called the word of God is a declaration of authority, a declaration of judgment, a declaration by which the nations, which he is the healing of the nations, but he's also the judgment of of the nations, that Jesus is the word of God and from his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down these nations, that he carries out God's judgment with a simple declaration. And doesn't even use physical violence to win this war, but a simple declaration, just as in 15 declarations, everything that was was created in creation by God. Now, in destruction before the new creation, the word of God has come and the word of God is authoritative. It says he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is significant of Jesus' rule, his scepter or his rod as a king of iron, which means unbreakable, unshakable, unyielding. He is coming back and he will judge sin and he will defeat God's enemies. That it, He's not flaky. He's not wishy-washy. He is coming back with a very, very clear mission. The words wrath and anger are used 13 times in verses 6 through 19 that Jesus is coming back to make judgment and his judgment is sure. I want to read a quote from a, a theologian. His name's Bill Mounts. He does great work. And he says this about this rod of iron. He says, any view of God that eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse. Finally, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ultimately, when we look at this white rider, the last thing that John records about him is that he has a title that is above every other title. That there are other kings and there are other lords, but he's the king of every king and he's the Lord of every Lord. And he's coming back and he's the greatest of any. <sighs> so I'm, done, I'm done going through that now, right? We're going to slow down for a minute. It won't be like that. You're like, this is Memorial Day. Like, I'm exhausted already listening to him. I'm trying to have a relaxing weekend. <laughs> but you look at these statements, right? These eight statements, really seven statements of appearance and one statement of his name, faithful and true. And I want us to just 
take a moment real quick. Take a minute and uh, look up or close your eyes or wherever you feel most creative and imaginative. And I want you to picture Jesus. Just think about Jesus and what do you see? And I think even after reading this, most of us in this room still don't get that image of Jesus when we think about Jesus. And it's not about the accuracy of imagery, right? That's not what I'm trying to get at here. The accuracy of this imagery, when you look at Jesus, you don't have to always see this, right? Uh, but this is who he is. And this is who's coming back. And I, and I think it's amazing. It's an amazing gift that Jesus came in the way he did, right? Vulnerably of a virgin, humbly riding on a donkey, hanging as a criminal on a cross, but he's coming back, and he's going to be back in the saddle again as a victorious rider on a white horse. And today, I hope that we would see the victorious Jesus, that we would see this warrior king, that our perspective may change, that instead of maybe seeing Jesus as a, Jesus is my homeboy, Jesus, right, or as a helpless baby in a manger, whatever we think of when we think of Jesus, again, don't, don't get hung up on the imagery, but get hung up on who he is. Get hung up on the authority of Jesus, that when you look at him, think of authority. When you pray to him, think of authority. When you think of your own life, and if you, by grace through faith, have repented of your sins and put your faith, hope, and trust in him alone as your Lord and Savior and King, he's yours. He's your King, and you're part of his army. You're part of the family of God, and victory is available to us. But it doesn't always feel like that, does it? When we're praying prayers and we're going through something, we're not always praying like, wow, I'm part of this magnificent conquering army as my boss is yelling at me on a Thursday afternoon. And as we're praying and envisioning Jesus, sometimes it can be hard to feel like we're victorious, can't it? I just had a, a pretty serious diagnosis in my family. And I didn't feel super victorious when I heard those words. Now, I think this is why the change of perspective is really important for us, that as we go through life, life is hard, amen? Even on Memorial Day weekend, amen, life is hard. And sometimes it's hard for us to feel like this is who we are. Sometimes it's hard for us to feel like that's my guy. We know it in our hearts, we believe it in our minds, but our feelings can be fickle and betray us at times, and we feel super defeated. Even though you're walking in victory, you can feel super defeated. And I think that dissonance is hard. And sitting in that is hard. Living in that is hard. When you have family members that you're just praying, 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 Lord, let them please repent of their sin and come to you for salvation. It's hard. And I think that's why this shift of perspective is so vital. That as you pray, as you think, as you live, as you walk, if you're walking, praying, thinking, living in victory if you belong to Jesus. Now, th now, this isn't like a name it and claim it message. That's not what I'm coming to say, that if you just say you win, you win. And uh, you know, how many of you would, uh, if you knew you couldn't lose, you would go do something different, right? I asked the first service this same question, and none of them fessed up to it. So I hope I have some more honest people in the second service. How many of you, if you knew you couldn't fail, would go play the lottery? Come on, you tithe on it, right? Amen? Yeah. But, but think about the things that you would go do if you knew you couldn't fail. Personal evangelism. If you knew every time you went out, you were going to win someone to the Lord. 
you'd go out and do it. Because most of the time we go out and they're like, shut up. <laughs> like, I don't want to hear what you have to say. And you're like, okay, God bless you. Jesus loves you. And I don't right now, but he does, I promise. <laughs> but think about the things that we would do if our perspective shifts slightly to victory. To knowing that victory is coming. And it's ours today, friends. It might not feel like it today. But Jesus, as he uh, gives the great commission to his followers in the gospel of Mark, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's over people. That's over your home. That's over your front yard. That's over parenting your children with their dis when they're disobedient. Amen. Any parents? I have four young children under the age of seven. Hallelujah. And I proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And it starts with me. I've got to proclaim it to myself. So I just want us to look at Jesus today. As we move forward into the second point, we're going to look at the battle. But first, we've got to look at the king. We've got to look at the victorious one. And as we move forward and pick up in verse 17, we're going to see this victorious battle that's ours. Then I saw an angel. Standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Wow, yeah, ew, that's, that's one of the words that comes to my mind too, like Wow. What's interesting to me is, again, the angel is standing in the sun, is what John says. So looking at this angel is as bright as looking at the sun itself. But before we analyze this battle, though, before we get too deep into it, I just want to think about something in which the king submits, the victorious king uh, cements his victorious victory in battle. What's the only weapon used by Jesus in this phrase, in this statement? What's the only weapon that is coming out of his mouth? The sword called the word of God. What's the only weapon listed in the, uh, the armor that Christians are supposed to put on? The sword of the spirit, the word of God. In Ephesians 6, it's the only way that we stand firm against the deceitful schemes of the enemy. When Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness, being tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights in Luke chapter 4, what's the only defense he has against Satan? What does he say? Three words. It is written. Friends, you have the sword of the Spirit. You have the Word of God available to you. You have the only time-tested, consistently defeating weapon of Satan throughout time in your hands, resting in your lap, flooding your mind, filling your heart. This is how we're victorious. And it's amazing to look then at this time to see how am I going to be victorious now. The same way Jesus is victorious then, the same way Jesus was victorious over Satan. And this is why the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy because he's coming back and here's what he's going to defeat the enemies of God with. 
Again, we, we have access to this. But so commonly, we, we fight in our own strength, don't we? And we wonder why we're losing. So commonly, we feel like we're just being defeated over and over and over again. And, and you know, as a, as a pastor, I used to uh, serve at our Pontiac campus. I was our campus pastor there for a few years. And uh, people would come into my office all the time, and they would say, I've tried everything. I was like, well, why are you here now? Like, why, why did you try everything else first before you came into the church to try to pray? And friends, I think that so commonly we get hung up in that. Learn it. Believe it. Know it. Memorize it. It's written on your heart so that when your heart breaks, it's what falls in. It's written on your heart so that when a battle comes, this is what comes out. Out of the mouth flows from the heart. Get this in your heart because it overcomes. John says he sees an angel standing in the sun. And then he invites all these birds to come and eat corpses. I know we're going to get uh, pretty serious here. He, he invites all these birds to come and eat the corpses. Before there's even a battle, again, it's so interesting to me that he is, the angel is prophetically saying, come, there's a great feast for you available. And I think what this looks like for me is to understand that there's already a victory that's won, and it's just time until it comes into full fruition, right? We're in a fixed fight. We win in the end. We're winning right now. I know it may not feel like we're winning right now, but friends, Jesus and his people are winning right now. Amen? Amen. If you've been paying attention, this is the second feast that people are invited to in the book of Revelation in the 19th chapter, right? The first is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast of the Lamb where all the Lord's redeemed are at. Hallelujah. The next is something called the great feast of God. And maybe you've heard this phrase before, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? This great feast of God is all of the Lord's enemies that are there. In verse 19, we make our way to chapter 16 in the battle of Armageddon where the beast who's the Antichrist has gathered the kings of the earth. And these are, this is everybody who has put their faith, hope, and trust in worldly things. Like the earth's religious kings, the earth's geopolitical kings, the earth's military kings, and all their armies. Everybody who is standing up as part of the world is coming to fight against this invader into their territory, right? They think it's their territory and they're fighting against this invader, but the invader is Jesus. These three de demonic spirits are released from the mouth of the dragon, the beast, the antichrist, the, the false prophet. They're assembling everybody for this great battle. But before the battle even begins, there's like this great ironic reversal that's happening from mostly from chapter 13 of Revelation where it says that the beast and the pro false prophet get captured at the very beginning of the battle. It doesn't even say how it happens, but it just say, says they get captured. And in, in chapter 13, it says, the whole earth is the words used. The whole earth asks, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? We know it's Jesus, right? We see it happening. We see all of the world's schemes falling apart right here, right now. Similarly, the false prophet called down fire from heaven in chapter 13, and now the false prophet is imprisoned, right? The, the powers of heaven make him do their bidding, and, and it reverses this death that he put to death. Everyone who wouldn't worship the beast, now everyone who has the mark of the beast and worships the beast, they're put to death. So we see this reversal happen. We see this victory happen. And friends, if we, if we believe that it is then and it's happening and it's going to happen and it's a sure thing that it will happen, then it's got to influence us now. 
It's got to impact us now. Two of the three members of the false trinity are imprisoned at this time, and Pastor CT is going to tell you all about it next week, so make sure you come back next Sunday to hear what happens to the false trinity where the deceived kings and their armies are slain by the sword of Christ's mouth. And again, it says the birds were gorged on their flesh. In just five verses of Scripture, in what seems like moments, the battle's over. Jesus wins seemingly effortlessly. But there was effort put forth by Jesus, wasn't there? In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus sweat blood, asking his father if this cup of wrath can pass, sounds like it included some effort. As an innocent man on the cross, experiencing judgment for all of our sin, agony as the father's face turns away. It sounds like it took some effort, didn't it? There's a difference between trying and effort. Trying implies that you could lose. Jesus never could have lost. But effort implies that it cost something. And while we look at this final battle in Revelation 19, and we know that it is ours to hold on to, it's not yours to hold on to if you haven't acknowledged the effort that Jesus put forth first by repenting of our sin and putting our faith, hope, and trust in him, knowing that the effort he expended on the cross was for each and every one of us. And that's how we become part of this army that's riding on white horses, clothed in white, pure, fine linen, clothed and robed in righteousness, following him into this final victorious battle. And I know it's it's fun to look at it and say like, wow, that's an amazing battle. It's all going to be over just like that. But what side are we on of this battle? And maybe not just you. You're here at a church on Memorial Day. Hallelujah. Right? But I've been in church long enough to know that there's a lot of people that come to church that maybe aren't coming to heaven. There's a victory that's available to us. But just because it's available to you doesn't mean that you can't do something about it to get it. We who were dead in our trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, making us the righteousness of God. So friends, if if by faith you've put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus, by grace through faith, he invites us in to be a part of the victorious side of this battle. That's how we reap these benefits. That's how we can fight from victory instead of fighting for victory. You don't have to fight for the victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. It's already been won. It's already been purchased. And if you believe that with everything that you are, you're fighting from that victory. You're walking in victory. We we win in the end. And in fact, friends, I want to tell you, we are winning today. If this is true in the end, you are winning today. You are walking in victory today. Even if it doesn't feel like it, you're walking in victory today, knowing that whatever you've gone through, whatever you're going through, there is a deliverance that is coming. And whether it is on the final battle, whether it is when you ascend to glory, whether it is when God miraculously heals whatever that thing is, there is a deliverance coming. And it's coming through Jesus 
by the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the worship team is going to come back out and they're going to sing a familiar song for us. And this song is about victory. But I want us to just set a frame real quick about this. You know, we t- I'm talking to you, we're talking about us, but think about the people you know. Think about your friends and family. Think about this, this terrifying battle where it says, somebody said you when it said the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. I'm like, yeah, that's awful. Think about our neighbors. Think about the nations. What side of the battle are they on? And do you have a part in that mission? If we are going to be a part of this victorious side of the battle, then, friends, I promise you, we have a part in this mission now. We have a part in this mission of proclaiming the gospel to the whole earth now. And I know sometimes it's hard to get outside of ourselves and begin to think about all the stuff that's going on in the world without just talking down to it, with with believing that we have a part in this mission. But if you are riding on white horses behind the rider on white horse, friends, we're all a part of the mission. We're going to sing this song called Sea of Victory. And I know you've probably sung this song before and when we sing it, we often think about the, 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 the victory that we're looking to see, a victory. How many of you came in here fighting something today? Man, y'all are doing way better than the first service. You got your lives together. And when we sing this song, we usually think about that. We think about uh, this victory that I need to see. I need to see a victory over this thing or that thing. But now that you've seen the victory... That the victorious King Jesus is riding and is victorious in the final victorious battle. That all of your A victories are fought from the winning of the victory. And that's how I want us to sing this final song. That's how I want us to worship this final song. This final time that we're going to gather together for today. And we're going to go out into a holiday weekend. And we're going to think about the mission of God. And we're going to reflect about uh, what, what was heard today, what we sung today, the relationships we had today. And I want you to think about the victory and how that influences a victory that you are looking to win. And because you have won the victory finally and fully in Jesus Christ, it's an already not yet victory. It's, it's already won, but we haven't not, we've not yet fully experienced it. That there is a victory that you're called to fight in and win because you are fighting on the winning side. If we really believe that Jesus is coming back and when he does come back, he will finally and fully defeat God's enemies, then it should change the way we live today. So brothers and sisters, would you join me on your feet as we stand together in worship to see the victory as we see a victory that's already been won and allow it to compel us and motivate us into worship and mission today, right now, allowing the vision of that final victory to be the vision that floods our minds when we see the victories that we are fighting in today and are available to us right now. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, in the mighty name of Jesus, I wanna say thank you. Thank you that you've drawn us here, that many of us chose to come to church today, but you drew us here. Before the foundation of the world, you drew us into this place today. So I pray that as we have heard about the final victory, that we would know that it is ours if by grace through faith, we put our hope and trust in you as Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if we haven't, if we haven't made that decision yet, or we're not sure what side we're on, I pray that today would not end without us having a conversation about it, without us doing something about it, without us really asking, am I living in light of the final victory? 
So Lord, we trust you to do it. I thank you for all the victories that we are walking testimonies in this room right now, that you have granted so many victories in our life already, but there are victories waiting to be granted already in our, in our midst. And I pray that you would use the unity of your body together to pray together, to journey together, to lament together, to know that we can find healing in you through each other. But I pray ultimately that our eyes and our minds and our hearts would be fixed on that final victory today. Our gaze would be fixed on you, Jesus, that we would see the victorious warrior king as we go through life. And if we by faith know that we belong to him, 